From News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Maddie Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. Between monumental decisions like the reversal of Roe versus Wade, to the unprecedented leaking of the draft of that decision, to the questions around the full disclosure of financial interests of certain justices, the U.S. Supreme Court has certainly garnered much more of the public's attention lately. And the controversy around the court is not likely to subside anytime soon, with major decisions coming about whether state legislatures should be able to regulate federal elections without oversight by the courts. What amount of deference, if any, should be given to experts in administrative agencies that have been tasked with enforcing government regulations? Should the Biden administration's program that would allow up to 40 million borrowers receive up to $20,000 in cancellation of government-owned student loans be upheld? And whether social media companies can be held liable for the content that third parties post on their platforms? And that's just a few of the issues before the court this term. In our increasingly politically polarized climate, can the court stay above the fray and, as Chief Justice John Roberts said, just call balls and strikes? Or are we seeing an increasingly activist court that is willing to disregard longstanding precedents in pursuit of its own political agenda? And what will this mean for California generally and the San Joaquin Valley in particular? We'll ask two well-respected law professors, UC Davis School of Law professor Aaron Tang and University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law professor Leslie Giro Jacobs. Those conversations in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc., students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Maddie Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, the Supreme Court has dozens of cases to decide this term that could reshape American law and race in elections and education, religious protections in the workplace and other areas. What are these decisions likely to mean for California and the San Joaquin Valley? Our guest is Leslie Gilo Jacobs. She's the Anthony Kennedy Professor of Law and Executive Director of the Capital Center for Law and Policy at the University of Pacific's McGeorge School of Law. Welcome to the Maddie Report Valley News Edition. Thank you so much for having me. So Professor Jacobs, let me ask you this. Um, there seems to be a lot of tension between the conservative philosophical leanings of the current court versus the general liberal or progressive leanings of a state like California. Is that what we're gonna see play out in this case, uh, National Pork Producers Council versus Ross? Just very quickly, that case is about uh, the court determining whether California law that impacts uh, the out-of-state housing of farm animals uh, that could have a dramatic effect uh, economic effect uh, largely outside the state is a violation of the Constitution's Commerce Clause. Is that an overreach by California? Okay, and I'm going to jump in here a second just to clarify terms. We're using the terms conservative and liberal. Uh, I, I just want to be clear that what we're talking about now with the justices on the court, uh, when we talk about conservative, conservative used to mean things like respecting precedent, going slow, 
interpreting provisions in the Constitution narrowly and leaving things to the democratic process. And we're not seeing that from the people we're calling conservative now who have the majority on the court. Uh, they are actually aggressively interpreting the Constitution um, in ways that limit democracy in a number of different ways. So I think it's correct that we can talk about a conservative uh, you know, philosophy or um, you know, policy leanings. And as long as we do that, that's fine. So maybe um, we, call it, we call it an activist conservative court. Yeah, I suppose we should call it that, yes, because okay. they certainly are exerting their power. It's not a um, position of we are unelected judges, we will step back and let democracy solve questions that are ambiguous. Uh, they are stepping in and um, coming up with interpretations that are um, making, making it so places like California, as you point out, um, aren't able to choose public policies and implement them in their laws. Well, Professor Jeff, let me push back a little bit on that because others might say, oh, actually, they are allowing, you know, the public to make these decisions. For example, with the issue of abortion, they sent it back to the states. So it, democracies, you know, uh, legislatures and states could make that decision. Uh, wouldn't they argue that point of it? They would argue that with respect to that one decision having to do with abortion. But if you look at the interpretations, for example, of religious liberty, such a strong right that they're interpreting and expanding. And so it makes it so that California can't have its chosen COVID provisions. It makes it so that other states can't choose to implement a separation of church and state, for example, with taxpayer dollars going to private schools, um, the gun right that they have interpreted very strongly. So again, I'm not saying it's right or wrong, but I was just trying to clarify that with many parts of the Constitution, um, these justices are interpreting them aggressively to limit democratic action. I suppose I would say the same as too with respect to Congress's power. They, they are they interpret that more narrowly, and I know we may get to administrative agencies. Um, yeah, I was that in a second. You know, but I did want to mention it's interesting, like the area of religious discrimination. You know, the old case law used to be that the standard was frankly quite low uh, for an employer. If an, if an employee says, hey, I wanna have a Friday off because that's my Sabbath, that the, the, the standard would employer would have to do was, was pretty low because um, the court didn't really wanna get into, it's a case called TWA versus Harson. The court didn't really wanna get into the whole issue of, of you know, religious accommodation. It seems this court on the other hand is, is quite willing um, to, to get involved in that. So that's gonna be a, kind of a, a big change as well. So you're seeing some of that policy shift uh, pretty significantly. That's that's one example I certainly see. You know, yeah, I just want to clarify that um, there are different ways that the court interprets religious liberty. One of them is in strongly interpreting the provision in the Constitution that guarantees free exercise of religion. Another one is strongly interpreting a federal statute that has to do with religious liberty. And then what you're talking about is an employment statute right. that allows for accommodations based on religion. And yes, um, that would be one where we would expect to see um, th them interpret that to be um, a broader uh, right to and an employer having to accommodate in more instances. Yeah, and you see like the terminology they use for accommodation is very similar in religious discrimination cases and disability discrimination cases. But over, you know, in the past, there's been a difference on how you apply those. You apply much more rigor in the disability cases than you do in the, in the religious cases. It looks like now they're bringing the two standards kind of together. Uh, but I, I digress. I want to talk a little about the, the administrative stakes. I think that's kind of important. Um, so we got a conservative majority in the court. 
seems to have an aversion toward this administrative state. This is the, something that's been around for about 100 years, the idea that uh, topic area experts in government agencies should be given some deference in their area of expertise. Is that your sense? Oh, absolutely. And just uh, yesterday, they accepted a new case um, having to do with the administrative state where they will explicitly reconsider the um, degree of deference that they give to administrative agencies. And so, yes, they're in a number of different ways. Um, the majority of the court is implementing a philosophy in the Constitution that they read to say that Congress can't give away so much power to administrative agencies. And so they want Congress to do the lawmaking and they are finding that the administrative agencies, which in one way or another report to the president, don't have the power because either Congress doesn't have the power to give it away or they read the statutes not to give the power to these agencies. It just, it just seems almost as an unworkable system what they're proposing because Congress can't uh, can't think of every possible contingency. Um, that's why you have to have some flexibility in the language and why you want experts to make those policies. I mean, do we really want senators who are not experts in whether it's you know food regulation or safety and health or what have you, are they really the right people to make that? Can they make that? And the other thing I think about is, well, legislators are actually working in a democratic process and that requires compromise, which requires uh, ambiguous language, so both sides feel like they got something. Uh, by definition, you're not going to have that precision, I think, in uh, if you defer to the legislature. So I just, I'm just studying back from a 30,000 foot level, thinking, is this system going to really work? Um, well, you're making the case uh, for allowing administrative agencies to do these jobs because Congress can't do that detail work. I mean, that's a, Congress makes laws and they pass broad statutes take care of the environment. And then they give the authority to the administrative agencies to pass those little rules that say, oh, and then this is where you have to do this and this is where you have to do that. And I have to agree with you. I think it's unwieldy to expect Congress to do that. Now, I will say that these justices who want to diminish agency power don't necessarily care about that, I think. I think they would prefer no regulation um, to the regulation by the agencies. So is really this is a kind of a, a backdoor way to basically eliminate regulation? It certainly will uh, well, eliminate strong, but reduce, yes. Because as we know, it's very hard to get laws through Congress nowadays. Right. I mean, we have the gridlock and then all the steps in the process, all the things you pointed out. So the end result of narrowing the scope of agency power will be that lots of things don't get regulated just because it's so difficult for Congress to do it. There are some people that will celebrate that, um, you know, oh, less the better it is. Um, but there are others that say, well, you know, we need to regulate, you know, labor conditions or, or uh, air quality or water quality, those kinds of things. And that becomes really problematic. What about, you know, the courts doing this whole wide range of, of decisions this term? Uh, any that you think might be particularly relevant for residents of the San Joaquin Valley? Well, let's see. Um, we're waiting on a number of cases. Uh, you had brought up the uh, California pork case, which we're still waiting on. The one thing I'll point out that was argued very early in the term, we're, we still haven't seen a decision. And so that signals that it's going to be a split decision and it's taking them a while to get their decision together. Um, so that's going to affect the ability, certainly, of California citizens to make decisions about the quality of products in their state. 
Uh, we're waiting on the affirmative action case as well. And again, that was argued very early in the term, not surprising that it's taking a while to come out. I think we're pretty sure where that will come out to say that- This is as a footnote to that affirmative action case. Remember they're talking about to our audience, they're talking about using race as a factor, not the factor. And so it's what they're saying is, you know, it's one factor of many that we will consider. The question is, can they, can they even do that? Um, and to be, exactly. I think higher education would say, yeah, we want a blended student population because education is better when you have people with different viewpoints. And so that's their educational argument. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, conservatives might say, we don't want you know be race neutral, race should have no role to play in this. So uh, that's kind of the issue there. The other thing I was, I was going to go back to the, to the pork case again, because it's not just that, right? Because if California, for example, implements regulations on air quality or you know cars, for example, um, that has implications nationwide. And so couldn't those regulations um, or climate change regulations or uh, you name it, uh, fast food regulations, couldn't those also be impacted peripherally by that case? Well, absolutely. And we're talking here about a part of the Commerce Clause of the Constitution. And what that's supposed to protect against is states being protectionist of the producers and the businesses in their own state. And so the pork case is special in that way because it's not protectionist, because it's not protecting other producers in the state. Now, maybe you'd have problems with that in other instances, but the concern with that case is that the, the size of California and the strength of its consumers will be held against it. And the court may say, oh, you're so powerful, you have such an influence on the nation, you're not allowed to do that, whereas a smaller state could. And that's problematic, I think, for people in California. Yeah, uh, Justice Katanji Brown-Jackson said, you know, we can solve this problem by coming having, having a middle ground. And her argument was, why not just put a label on the pork saying and let consumers make that decision in other states, hey, this was done pursuant to certain standards or not, and then uh, you could get to point B that would be less onerous than requiring it. Um, so they're trying to find, at least she's trying to find a middle ground here uh, to deal with this, but- uh, I just have to point out, I'm sorry, the Supreme Court, in its strong, strong, strong interpretation of the free speech clause, has applied it to labeling by businesses of their products. And it said that is unconstitutional compelled speech. And so it's not at all clear that labels that said, certainly if they said anything about abuse of animals, no way would the Supreme, the Supreme Court and majority allow that. Maybe hmm. some other type of label, but that's another place where the Supreme Court majority has been very aggressive in expanding the scope of the free speech clause to protect businesses with their labeling. Yeah, very, very interesting. Um, anything else you see? Any other court cases you see hitting uh, Central California or California generally uh, with the court? You have that one, well, you have that one case with um, uh, the uh, Ellis case where the business owners refusing to service. Uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, customers, uh, that may have some implications, I guess, for California. Uh, Absolutely. Maybe. And um, that's another place where we're going to see the court, uh, no question, um, interpret this is the free speech clause broadly to say that the website designer will have a free speech right to get an exemption from general laws that say you can't discriminate against gay people. And so um, that will influence um, that particular thing, but it will influence the ability of um, California to pass laws like that too.
and, imp yeah. and imply them against people who claim this is a speech objection, but it's got religious undertones. Yeah, and then one of the things that um, one of the justices, uh, Sonia Sotomayor said, you know, how about people who don't believe in interracial marriage or uh, people don't believe that disabled people should get married? Um, do they have the same rights uh, to deny them service? So it gets to be a, a slippery slope for sure. Um, you know, when we come back, uh, what can or should the court be doing to navigate some of the recent ethical questions that have been raised about their financial dealings? Are the complaints just political, uh, politically motivated, or are, they, are their actions of the Supreme Court really undermine the country's faith in the court's integrity? That conversation in a moment. This is the Matter Report, Valley Views Edition. The Matty Institute has become one of the most active public policy institutes in California because of support of people like you. Because of that support, the Matty Institute has been able to highlight San Joaquin Valley issues that are often overlooked by those in Sacramento and Washington. If you want the Valley to have a strong voice, and you believe in a fact-based, bipartisan, and problem-solving approach to politics and public policy, please consider joining us as a Matty Associate. You can learn more at mattyinstitute.org. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Leslie Gilo Jacobs, the Anthony Kennedy Professor of Law and Executive Director of the Capital Center for Law and Policy at the University of the Pacific's McGeorge School of Law about the current state of the U.S. Supreme Court. You know, uh, Professor Jacobs, I want to ask you, um, recently there have been a number of ethical questions that have been raised about the financial dealings of several Supreme Court justices. To the surprise of many, the Supreme Court has no formal code of conduct. As a result, the Senate is now talking about adopting a code of conduct for the court. Is that something that the Congress can do? And, and if they did it, how could they enforce it? Well, uh, yes, Congress could adopt uh, some type of code of conduct for the court. I have to say that there is a code of conduct that applies to lower court judges. And the Supreme Court have said, justices have said that they are abiding by it. And then we also have to distinguish the code of conduct from the separate uh, gift disclosure and financial disclosure obligations that the, the judges and justices are subject to, because there actually are two statutes that um, are, regulate ethics in government, and they do apply to Supreme Court justices. Now, there's an exception for the gifts, but the justices have passed a resolution saying that they're subject to it. And just in the last couple of weeks, the judicial conference within the Judges Association has passed more specific rules um, saying they apply to the Supreme Court justices. So the, I think you've pointed out here by asking about enforcement what the issue is. How do you enforce things mm -hmm. against the Supreme Court justices? They say they're doing it, but obviously they're not doing it um, in a way that creates confidence. And so enforcement would be the difficult thing. Yeah, it's and it's really left up to them. I mean, they really are the Supreme Court. Um, no one's really looking over their shoulder, it seems like. I will say, and yes, as far as lower court judges go, there is a statute that says, or a rule that says that um, people can file complaints about their conduct. And that doesn't exist with the Supreme Court justices. Now that said, there is public pressure that can be brought to bear. And that can cause the court to adopt its own code of conduct or Congress could adopt it, and then it could go up to the Supreme Court, and they're the last arbiter about whether it's constitutional, but feet to the fire. Maybe Congress could pass it and make the justices say, oh, no, we're not going to abide by it. Um, there are various different things that can be done to put that kind of pressure on them, to be more transparent about what 
they're doing, who they're meeting with, what gifts they're taking, that could be put brought to bear. Yeah, I, mean, I would think that you know the Supreme Court doesn't have an army. Um, what it has really is its bedrock is its integrity um, and why people follow them. And if they lose that integrity, belief in a lot of people uh, that if they're playing in the up and up, that's could be a problem problem for them in terms of their power. Uh, let me ask another question here. You know, recently we've heard that at least from one side of the aisle, um, people are pretty upset. So they're talking about changing the makeup of the court. And some people are talking about adding new members to the court. Um, that doesn't seem really to have much support, you know, expanding the court. But the idea that does seem to have some support is the, this idea of term limits for justices. Uh, seems to be kind of popular. Could such a change be implemented? How, how likely is that to happen? Well, those are two separate questions. And I'm going to say I think term limits are a good idea. Um, and um, could it be implemented? Uh, yes, I believe that the Congress could pass a law and um, set term limits, but it would have to be term limits in the sense that they would serve as Supreme Court justices for a number of years. But because they have life tenure under the Constitution, they would still remain as judges and maybe sit in circuit courts with, like they used to do. You know, the justices way back in the day didn't have enough to do. And so they did what was called ride circuit. And they'd get on horses and they'd ride to another place and be a circuit court judge. So it's not unprecedented. Uh, but will Congress actually do it? It's the gridlock problem and it's the partisan problem because everybody thinks that one side or the other of this issue is in, to their advantage. And so trying to get something through would be very difficult, I think. I. I it would be great if it could go through, though. I think it would be good for democracy. We aren't used to having justices stay in their seats for this long. You know, people died earlier. They were appointed later. Um, and so to have a lock by these individual personalities for over 30 years, it's a different thing that we're seeing now and not healthy, I would yeah, say. I think one of the things you're pointing to is the, the incentive in the current system is to put someone on the court as young as possible so they stay on as long as possible. Query, is that really the best jurist, the best legal mind, someone in their 30s or 40s? Wouldn't you want someone more experienced, maybe in their 50s or 60s, uh, that have been around the block and, and you know have a more of an established record? In fact, one of the things now, the way you get on the court is by not having a record that anybody can attack, um, which means you don't know what you're getting. And so maybe term limits, if they know it was a defined term, defined term, they could say, listen, we could put someone on the court who's in their 60s, knowing it's going to be a 24-year term or whatever, um, as opposed to having to put someone on in their 30s because we want that person to be on the court for 40 years. And I think you'd get, I would think you would get a higher level of uh, judicial uh, awareness and, and uh, thoughtfulness if you had someone maybe a little more experience uh, on the court. And that kind of worries me that the incentives seem to me to be backwards. Uh, exactly. Well, experience and also some turnover and new ideas are also, there. it is a political appointment process uh, set out in the Constitution. But the good thing about term limits is it would stagger uh, the appointment. So each president would get perhaps two appointments. And so, yes, the political process determines who the president is. It determines Yeah, and one of the, and one of the things that that's problematic is that you know with with what Mitch McConnell did um, with some of Obama's appointments, it made it uh, difficult for some people on the other side to accept the validity of uh, of what he was uh, what what he what all of those people that got on the court based on uh, Mitch McConnell's actions. 
Yes. The legitimacy of the court depends upon the procedures by which the justices were put there. And there's concern that both um, the waiting for the Gorsuch nomination, when in fact there were 11 months or 10 months, and then ramming Justice Barrett onto the court in just about eight weeks creates a perception that indeed the procedures weren't appropriately followed to have a composition of the court that we can say is legitimate. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this. Um, are, are we more likely to see a scenario? What's more likely to happen here? It, you know, dramatic, drastic change in the structure of the court or, you know, something along the lines of what FDR did, right? You know, he tries to do the court packing scheme back in the 30s. It's not, not successful. Um, the idea was that, you know, behind all this, oh, the Supreme Court's politically immune. They're, they're, they're appointed for life, so they're, not, they're immune to politics. But it was very interesting that when you look at what has happened with FDR, he didn't get his court packing scheme, but what he got was legislation, like in, in labor relations, for example, a statute that was declared unconstitutional. Congress basically did said, oh yeah, they did a cut and paste, took a section out, section seven, called that the National Labor Relations Act, went up before the court a couple of years later, and the court now approves it. It is constitutional. So that was kind of the, a good example of yeah, maybe the court is kind of feels some political pressure. Um, do you think that the court is really immune from political pressure? Are they political just like the rest of us? Well, your story, we call that the switch in time that saved nine, <laughs> meaning nine justices. So yes, that's a famous switch um, that where there was a feeling that the justices were out of sync with the political process, with the president and with a majority elected Congress. And so no, they're not immune. Uh, from po political um, pressure and from popular opinion. Um, and so, yes, I think most realistically, possibly, uh, we could see the justices uh, reacting to that. Some have looked at the justices' recent um, decision to grant a stay in the um, abortion pill case, Mifepristone case, and said, well, you know, perhaps they're taking a little bit of a step back and not implementing their preferences, but understanding, trying to be consistent and what they do and what the rule of law should be. And maybe we'll see that in other instances as well. So the bottom line, yes, I think public pressure can have an influence on at least some justices. Yeah, because you're seeing it now with, with the reversal of Roe versus Wade, that there's been a political fallout with that. And, and I'm sure that they're aware of that um, going forward. Well, I want to thank this wide-ranging conversation uh, with Professor Leslie Gilo Jacobs, the Anthony Kennedy Professor of Law, and the executive director of the Capital Center for Law and Policy at the University of Pacific's McGeorge School of Law. Thanks so much for joining us. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening to this program. A functioning democracy requires a well-informed electorate. Indeed, there's nothing more important. And by taking the time to become better informed, you're not only supporting fact-based decision-making, but you're doing your part to strengthen our democracy. Indeed, Thomas Jefferson once wisely noted that the best defense of democracy is an informed electorate. So thank you for being an engaged citizen and helping make the San Joaquin Valley and California better and our nation a more perfect union. Now, back to the program. Welcome. The 6-3 conservative supermajority on the U.S. Supreme Court has delivered some recent decisions that can be described as both historic and extraordinary. For example, uh, they have, among other things, eliminated the constitutional right to abortion, expanded gun rights, 
restricted federal authority to combat climate change, and reduced the separation of church and state. Our guest, UC uh, Davis Law Professor Aaron uh, Tang has written, quote, as yet another blockbuster term unfolds, the American people will be watching and judging what kind of court we have, unquote. So welcome to the Matterport, Professor Tang. Thanks for having me, Mark. Um, so uh, we have a very conservative majority, uh, large majority on the Supreme Court, uh, and they've been described, they describe themselves, I guess, as kind of originalists. Can you describe the difference between originalists and those that see the Constitution as a living document? Sure. Um, I think we should think of originalists as believing two things. So first, that the meaning of the words in the Constitution is fixed as of the time those words are enacted or ratified, right? So 1787 for the Constitution, 1791 for the Bill of Rights. And second, that that fixed constitutional meaning constrains, it limits what judges can do. Judges cannot issue a decision that <clears throat> conflicts with this fixed constitutional meaning. And a living constitutionalist is just somebody who disagrees with either both or one of those principles. Usually living constitutionalists disagree with this constraint principle or this idea that um, there's nothing judges can do if the original meaning of the text uh, uh, binds them. So one of the arguments that the originalists would have is if you're you know, one of these more progressive or liberal you know, living document uh, constitutionalists, you're really just legislating from the bench. Um, there are no fixed principles. Um, you can change them over time. Yeah, I think that's a fair critique. You know, I mean, I don't identify as an originalist, but I think it's fair to say that a living constitutionalist judge who thinks that they can update the meaning of the words with whatever values, preferences, uh, 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 policy ideas they have in mind is somebody who's really just, you know, legislating from the bench, uh, coming up with constitutional rights based on what they like. But I think it's also fair we need to identify that that same criticism can be levied against the conservative originalists as well, right? Uh, 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 so it would be one thing, I think, if, if the Constitution's words, every single word in the Constitution was perfectly clear, right? So sometimes the Constitution is clear. It says you have to be 35 to be president. No ambiguity there. But other times it's ambiguous. It says states can't deprive people of liberty without due process of law. It says Americans uh, are entitled to the privileges of citizenship that states can't deprive them of. But what are those privileges? What are the liberties? Constitution doesn't list them. And so uh, it's ambiguous. There's plenty of evidence, for example, that the right to terminate a pregnancy was understood to be a privilege or a liberty interest in 1868, certainly at the founding when uh, abortion was allowed for most of early pregnancy. Um, there's evidence on the other side, too. And so when the originalist looks at this conflicting, ambiguous evidence, they're going to legislate from the bench. They're going to choose the evidence that happens to align with their own uh, political preferences. Uh, um, and so they're guilty of the same, I think, vice. Okay, so you say, you've written that, quote, originalism is on trial uh, at the Supreme Court. What do you mean by that? Yeah, so um, if one wanted to be a principled originalist and apply the original meaning of the Constitution all the way down the line to constrain justices, no matter what dispute it would be, um, uh, it would lead sometimes to surprising uh, progressive liberal victories, right? So there's a big case this term on when a state can allow an individual who's been injured uh, by a large corporation to sue that corporation in that state rather than having to travel to a far off state. There's a big dispute about affirmative action, which asks whether states can uh, 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 use race conscious uh, admissions policies as maybe a sort of a remedial measure, among other reasons, to help uh, underrepresented minorities who've been the victims of discrimination. Um, the original meaning, the historical evidence on those questions actually cuts against, in some ways, the conservative policy preference. So the real question would be whether the conservatives on the Supreme Court want to be originalists 
or they want to be uh, uh, moving the ball on sort of conservative movement goals. They can't really do both at the same time. And that's what I mean by originalism. Just on well, are, are you going to stick to your theor theoretical guns, I guess, as it were? Um, let me ask you this. In a similar vein, you argued that lawyers on the right are advancing arguments that they once rejected on principle. How so? Yeah, so um, this is cyclical. When the conservatives didn't have control of the Supreme Court, they would argue for rules and doctrines that would limit the power of the Supreme Court. An example of this is standing, which is a rule based on what, uh, about when the Supreme Court can even decide a case. Conservatives didn't want a liberal court deciding many cases, so they had a very powerful standing doctrine. Now that conservatives have recaptured the Supreme Court, they don't want that powerful set of standing limits to stop this court from deciding all sorts of things like you know, loan forgiveness and what have you. And so they're uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, hypocritically, I think, uh, cut back, pare back the very standing rules that they uh, erected just a decade ago. And it sounds to me if there was a liberal majority in the Supreme Court, they would be playing, probably playing the same game and, and, and how they interpret standing. Totally well, fair, yes. This is okay. a game that both sides play. Yeah. Well, up next, we're going to talk about some of the biggest cases that are going to be impacting California this term. That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. After a contentious major term, Supreme Courts in the past have tended to return to a more low-key term. That appears unlikely to be happening this time around. So what are some of the big cases that are going to be impacting California? Our guest is Aaron Tang. He is a uh, Supreme Court expert. I guess you could argue expert because he was a clerk with the Supreme Court. He's also a constitutional law expert with UC Davis Law School. Um, so I want to ask you, um, the last term was kind of defined by that abortion decision. It's very important. This new term seems like it's going to be defined by race. So one of the things they're going to be talking about is affirmative action. A lot of confusion around that term. People hear equal opportunity, affirmative action, affirmative action plans, quotas, consent decrees. And they, don't, they think it all means the same thing. They don't. What does affirmative action mean? Yeah, so what's at issue in a pair of big cases at the Supreme Court uh, is a specific policy, an approach that roughly half of America's selective universities use, which is when deciding who to admit into the incoming class of college freshmen or graduate school students, uh, these selective schools will take race into account as one factor among many in choosing who to admit. So in the same way as they might give a a preference or bonus to a student uh, who's from an underrepresented geographic area or a student who's a great athlete or a great musician or from a speaks different language. Uh, just in the same ways those students might get some preference in the application process, affirmative action policies that are on trial at the court now uh, would give a similar kind of preference to students from an underrepresented uh, uh, racial group. So I'm wondering what the implications are. One thing I was thinking about was this um, in California, they have cap and trade, and they have 35% of that money um, goes to disadvantaged communities. They didn't use race as a factor. So I'm thinking maybe they did that because they wanted to make sure it passed constitutional muster because race as a factor, probably the court's going to strike down this time around. Yeah, some good lawyering by the state of California, mm -hmm. uh, taxpayer dollars going to good use. But yes, so I, I don't think anything that happens in this affirmative action case, and to be clear, it's almost certain the Supreme Court will strike down, will rule unconstitutional this practice that many colleges have of taking race into account. That will not affect um, uh, California's cap and trade system, right? The use of disadvantaged communities is a preference based on uh, other criteria, such as uh, economic status. And in fact, that is actually one of the alternative proposals that uh, the groups suing to block affirmative action at Harvard and University of North Carolina, they would prefer those schools to use socioeconomic preference to give bonuses to poor low-income students who are applying. The argument on the other side, though, is it doesn't quite capture all of the issues that that issue of race captures. It captures some of them. There's concentric circles there, some overlap, but not, you know, 
identical. Let me ask you a, a, a question about another really major issue that's going to be in front of the court, and that is this independent state legislature theory. Can you describe what that is and what the implications are? Yeah, so uh, the theory from the broadest level is the idea that when states regulate elections, that is the one issue that state legislatures sort of have free reign. They are independent. They can violate their constitutions, and the state Supreme Courts can do nothing about it. Right? Ordinarily, if the California legislature wants to do something, if it violates the California uh, Constitution, the California Supreme Court is going to strike down what the state has done. On this issue alone, you have Republican lawmakers in North Carolina who, are su who are, have sued and are arguing the Supreme Court that they want to gerrymander their maps. They want to make it so that no matter how many votes Democrats win, 50, 52 percent of the votes in the state, that Republicans will always have a supermajority of the seats uh, uh, North Carolina's seats in the United States House of Representatives through partisan gerrymandering. The state Supreme Court struck that uh, practice down, the partisan gerrymanders down, saying they violated the state's free elections clause. Seems like a pretty obvious example of violating a free election if voters' votes don't even count because the maps have been rigged in a way that somebody's always going to win and somebody's always going to lose. Um, and uh, the North Carolina Republican legislature would like to get rid of that uh, state Supreme Court decision. And this is the independent state legislature theory, the theory that the state legislature alone gets to draw these maps and regulate elections. And it, and it goes both ways, right? If you have a, a democratically controlled state, uh, governor in both houses, um, they're going to want to gerrymander the districts. Now, of course, in California, we don't have that because we have a citizens redistricting commission. But in other states, sure. they'll do the same thing. Yeah. The best example is New York, right? Actually, the gerrymander in North Carolina was almost completely counteracted by Democrats who gerrymandered New York state maps. New York State's uh, Court of Appeals, their Supreme Court struck down those maps as well. That decision could would go off, off the books if New York's Democrats want to gerrymander, uh, if the independent state legislature theory is accepted, uh, uh, they could do so. I don't think it's going to be accepted. I think it's likely the Supreme Court would reject this argument or the case might even go away. The North Carolina Supreme Court has granted rehearing because the Republicans recaptured that state uh, Supreme Court. Uh, so the, whole, the whole issue might be moved, but it does it does point. It's, it's a pretty extreme interpretation and, and it's small d it seems to be undemocratic. It's hard to square that circle. Uh, we have no oversight whatsoever of how these districts are, are, are being designed. Well, up next, we're going to continue our conversation with the Supreme Court term and what kind of decisions they're going to have and that they're going to impact Californians. That conversation in a moment. This is the Mad Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Mad Institute. We're talking with Aaron Tang. He's a constitutional scholar and professor of law at UC Davis about some of the major issues being decided by the Supreme Court this term. Um, so the court's being asked to weigh in on a Biden administration program that would allow up to 40 million borrowers receive up to $20,000 in cancellation of government-owned federal student loans. Am I correct that this case really is all about issues of two issues, standing and there's something called the major questions doctrine? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So there are two questions in the case. The first is standing. Does anybody have the right to sue to try and stop or block this uh, Biden administration loan forgiveness policy? And the second question is, if somebody does have the right to sue, maybe the state of Missouri, that, which doesn't want loan forgiveness, um, uh, uh, does the Biden administration have the power to issue this kind of relief? Right? Administrations have whatever power uh, is granted to them by Congress. Congress has a statute here that has given the Secretary of Education the power to waive uh, or modify uh, requirements of federal loan programs during national emergencies. Does that allow the Biden administration to uh, waive $20,000 in loan obligations during a national emergency like COVID? COVID would certainly seem to qualify as, as, as a major emergency. It's the biggest pandemic we've had in 100 years, but they're still challenging it. 
Yeah. So that's the, so this major questions doctrine is this very powerful, powerful um, beast. I think it's fair to say it's responsible for striking down uh, OSHA's vaccine mandate protection for uh, 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 tenants during, uh, from, from uh, an eviction moratorium. Uh, it's protect, it's uh, responsible for gutting an environmental uh, regulation. Yeah, but, these, but these things go both ways, right? Because when they want to get involved and, and uh, when a Republican administration wants to make these major changes, if the court's consistent, they're going to say, well, you can't because it, it violates the major uh, yeah, this, this I, doctrine. I think in theory, that's true. So it'll really uh, depend if, if when we have a Republican presidential administration again, if the six conservative justices in the Supreme Court are as eager to strike down, deem Republican initiatives as major questions that Congress didn't give them the power to, uh, to yeah. implement, I think the track record is unlikely during the Trump administration. Certainly the Supreme Court had the power to decide that for example, the Trump travel ban was a major question that Congress didn't give <clears throat> President Trump clear authority to restrict immigration from uh, uh, entrance from these seven majority Muslim countries. The border wall could have been a major question. Uh, so it remains to be seen how principled and neutral this court will be in applying it. Yeah, yeah you, you have a rule, consistently apply it. That's the thing. And that, and that gets into people start questioning the court when they have a rule and they only apply it when it favors them. That becomes a problem. Let me ask you about this uh, case about social media companies being whether or not they should be liable for the content that third parties post on their platforms. What can you tell us about that case? Yeah, so um, this is a case that, I mean, I think in an extreme scenario could break the internet as we know it, and that would be really problematic. I don't think that extreme scenario is going to come to pass. What's at this, uh, really at, in dispute here is is, is part, kind of a sort of a narrow interpretive question about a broader statute. So Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act uh, protects social media companies like Google, YouTube, uh, Instagram, Facebook, so that um, if a user of Facebook or user of YouTube posts some defamatory video, some really hurtful, problematic video, the victim could sue just the person who posted it, but could not sue Facebook or Google for posting, for sharing, hosting uh, this video. It's a yeah, but, that's not, but that's not, I mean, argument is that's not what they're doing, though, because they have algorithms that kind of target this information to certain people. So they're not just posting it, they're kind of yeah. directing it. Exactly. So this case itself just concerns uh, YouTube, which had like a thumbnail recommendation. Hey, you watched a bunch of videos about ISIS. Here's another video about ISIS. Um, and so the victim of a foreign terrorist attack, their family is suing, saying we ought to be able to sue Google for recommending these ISIS promoting videos. Um, but it looks like the Supreme Court justices are going to recognize that any ruling that allows this family to sue, which frankly is very sympathetic, would open the door to some problematic uh, uh, other lawsuits like uh, the internet uh, co platform companies are curating their uh, organizing content all the time. Anytime Google returns like a, a search hit uh, response, they're telling you which websites are the top 10 or the top 20. Can they be sued for doing that? And the, um, court, I think the court realizes they're not experts when it comes to the internet. Listen, we only got about less than a minute left in this segment, but I did want to ask you about this case out of Colorado regarding graphic designer who's refusing to design uh, a gay wedding website based on the First Amendment. What can you tell us about that case? Yeah, it's another big case. It's the clash between LGBTQ rights and, and free speech. Uh, you have a, a, a Christian woman who doesn't want to design wedding websites for gay and lesbian uh, couples only. And she's asking the Supreme Court to hold that the First Amendment right to free speech gives her a speech right, an expressive right not to design that website. Maybe we can sympathize with her own situation. Maybe we think um, the state ought to be able to protect people from discrimination. But any ruling on her issue is going to have a slippery slope because you might have a white supremacist what graphic designer come along next and say, hey, free speech rights should allow me to discriminate on the basis of race.
Yeah, that's going to be a big case people are going to be watching. Well, up next, we're going to talk about the drumbeat of criticism the court has been under recently. Is it fair or not? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, according to a number of national polls, public approval of the Supreme Court is at its lowest level in nearly 50 years. Undoubtedly, a large part of that is a function of the today's hyperpartisan uh, political environment and also some of the controversial decisions the court has had to decide. But controversial, controversial decisions have always been part of the Supreme Court's docket. So what needs to change to increase the legitimacy of the court? We're talking with Aaron Tang. He's a former Supreme Court clerk with Associate Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor uh, and currently a professor of law at UC Davis. You know, after having clerked at the Supreme Court, I'm just wondering what your thoughts are about uh, that memo that was leaked about the abortion decision prior to it being a public. Yeah, I mean, this is an unprecedented uh, development. Um, the leak of a full-blown opinion, especially one on the most important issue uh, in our modern, uh, in the modern Supreme Court's history, uh, uh, it definitely frayed relationships. I think, especially, I mean, if we're being honest, the relationships among the justices between the conservative and liberal justices is already broken, was broken before the leaked opinion. But uh, the relationship between court employees and the justices, uh, uh, permanent employees. Uh, yeah, well, I know, Aaron, I want to actually ask you about that. What about the Supreme Court clerks? I mean, do you guys get along even though you're, you know, you're working for different justices? There's a different, or, so clerks are, uh, are, in, are in the building. They work for one year terms. So uh -huh. there's a very different vibe, a very different um, feeling depending on the year, depending on the cases, uh, what happens in the votes. Um, so I don't know about uh, this particular term. I would hazard a guess that it wasn't especially friendly, given how contentious the year was, uh, but I don't know for sure. You know, there, there's lots of issues have been raised recently about conflicts of interest with some of the Supreme Court justices. It's interesting that the U.S. Supreme Court justices do not have a code of conduct like other judges do. Should they? Uh, sure. I mean, I think if we were, you know, if we could wave a magic wand, would Supreme Court justices abide by the same judicial code of conduct as lower federal court judges? Sure, they would abide by the same rules of refusal and disclosure and so forth. But at the end of the day, right, the question is always going to be who enforces that rule. Uh, I've yet to hear a, a good proposal for anybody other than the Supreme Court itself policing its own judicial code of conduct. Um, and at the point at which that's the, you know, the, the, the set of uh, um, um, enforcers that we have, it's not clear how much better it is than the status quo where there's no code of conduct at all. You know, there is, um, I'm just wondering, is this a temporary problem or is this something more systemic with the court? Do we need, does the court need structural change or reform? I mean, people are talking about expanding the size of the court or term limits. So I think it depends a little bit on where you sit on the political spectrum. But I think for most Americans, it is a structural problem. Most Americans, moderates, uh, independents, Democrats, think that the current Supreme Court is badly out of touch with mainstream American values and everything from uh, certainly ab abortion rights, perhaps contraception, uh, LGBTQ rights, uh, gun safety, sensible gun safety. And so for these Americans, I think there's a real argument that if the Supreme Court is going to stop them from getting the sensible policies that they would like, that their lawmakers have voted to enact, and the Supreme Court's going to strike them down, uh, there needs to be some serious conversation about structural reform. Well, so what about the issue? You know, Normally, there's not a lot of support, frankly, for expanding the court. I think what I've read is polls saying about 60% oppose expanding the court. That's not true about term limits, however. There's about over 70% public polling approving of term limits. And I would take it one step further. You and I have talked about this earlier uh, in another conversation about 
you know, maybe you want a jurist who's been around for a while. I mean, right now the incentive is to put the youngest possible jurist on the court because they'll stay there the longest. But if there's a set term limit, that doesn't become so much of an issue. Yeah, so I think it's correct to say that there's a lot that's broken about the current Supreme Court's nomination process, the confirmation process and appointments. Um, but I think it's also a mistake to think that 18-year term limits would solve those problems. Uh, um, it's still the case that Republican presidents are going to want to vote to confirm and, or appoint and confirm uh, reliable conservative judges, whether they're younger or older. The Democrats would want to do the same thing. It's really our politics, our partisan politics, that is, uh, to blame for this system, the lack of moderation, centrism on the Supreme Court. So I don't know that term limits really move the needle on that problem. Yeah, so so that's kind of, it's a silver bullet that maybe is is not the solution that people think it is. Yeah, I mean, I think you're right. We would rather have term limited justices 18 years so that we have staggered, people can't time when they jump off the bench. Uh, uh, and so, you know, in theory, if you, if you win presidential elections, you get to nominate a majority of the members of the Supreme Court. So that's better than nothing. But the cost of enacting term limits is very high. We'd have to carve out from the filibuster to do it. And at the point at which you're doing that, you might wonder whether there are better, you might get more bang for your buck doing other things, enacting uh, a right to abortion statute, federal gun control laws, uh, uh, stripping the Supreme Court of power to decide controversial issues. So d democracy is a messy thing. There's lots of different ways to get to point B, I suppose. Well, I want to thank our guest, Aaron Tang, a constitutional law scholar with the UC Davis uh, School of Law, for joining us. The Matty Report. Valley Views Edition is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. The Matty Institute is your public affairs institute. We are an alliance of the Valley's four public universities, Fresno State, California State University Bakersfield, Stanislaus State, and UC Merced, that have joined forces to better serve the residents of the San Joaquin Valley. Our goal is to support a fact-based, bipartisan, problem-solving approach to the public policy challenges we face as a region, state, and nation. You can learn more about the activities of the Matty Institute by logging on to our website at mattyinstitute.com.